0: Amen. This Jesus, this Jesus, this Jesus, when preached rightly, transforms lives. Amen? Amen. Let me introduce our text with an amazing story from church history that shows the same gospel preaching power at work even after this day. The story um, starts with Benjamin Keach. Okay, a guy named Benjamin Keach. Benjamin Keach was a famous Puritan pastor. He was a Reformed, uh, particular Baptist brother in London, England. Uh, so he's sort of one of my heroes, a theological giant. Benjamin Keach is best known for uh, introducing the regular singing of hymns, like we just did, in the normal worship of the church. So he liked music. So you should think of like me and Blake combined into one person, but way smarter and cooler. Look, I even brought a picture, all right? Check that hair out of Benjamin Keats, right? Uh, look, look at that, Matthew. See, you're not the first one, man, all right? Look, I, I mean, Benjamin Keats uh, was a baller. Uh, he was uh, the minister of a congregation at Winslow in England 1668, uh, he eventually went to a congregation at a place called uh, Horsley Down, because that's how they name cities over there. Horse lie down—that's the name of the city. Um, it became uh, Southwark. He pastored for 36 years, and that congregation later became uh, the New Park Street Church, and then eventually they moved to a place in London called the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which was under the pastorship of Charles Spurgeon, which you may have heard of, famous Baptist preacher. Summary so far, Benjamin Keach was a baller, but this story is not about him. It's about his son. He had children, he was a family man. One of his children was a son named Elias, Elias Keach. There's an 18th century Baptist historian named Morgan Edwards. He tells a story about Elias. Elias Keach came to America in 1686, and when he came, he posed, or you know, was an impostor. He pretended to be a minister, son of a famous preacher, Benjamin Keach from London. He he wanted to support himself when he came here to the the new world. Sadly, this was a common practice. People would come to America and they would you know pose as a doctor or pose as a preacher and uh, they would build a living out of it. Of course, he has daddy's name behind him, and so he begins to do it. What happened though when Elias Keach stood up? Near the Tennessee area, and and spoke. Morgan tells us his story. Listen to this quote: He, that's Elias, arrived in this country a very wild spark about the year 1686. On his landing, he dressed in black and white. uh, Excuse me, dressed in black and wore a band in order to pass for a minister. The project succeeded to his wishes, and many people resorted to hear the young London divine. He performed well enough. "'Till he had advanced pretty far in the sermon. "'Then, stopping short, he looked like a man astonished. "'The audience concluded that he had been seized "'with a sudden disorder. "'But on asking what the matter was, "'they received from him a confession of the impostor, "'with tears in his eyes and much trembling. "'Great was his distress, though it ended happily.'" For from this time on, he dated this moment as his conversion. He heard that there was a Baptist minister at Cold Spring in Bucks County between Bristol and Trentown. To him, he went to seek counsel and comfort. And by that preacher, he was baptized and ordained. The minister's name was Thomas Dungan. From Cold Spring, Mr. Elias Keach came back to uh, Pennepeck. That's the town where he was at. He planted a church there as before related. And then traveled through Pennsylvania and all the jerseys jerseys for the rest of his life here, preaching the gospel in the wilderness with great success. So much so that he's considered as a chief apostle of the Baptist in those parts of America, end quote. Now, did you catch it? This brother got saved in the middle of preaching one of his own sermons. He literally gets into the pulpit as a non-believer is preaching a sermon that he comes under conviction in the middle of, and God saves him. What an example from 1686 of the power of the preached word of God. The power of the word. I'm talking capital W, Jesus Christ being the center of the word. When it's preached in words, it brings transformation. It brings life. It called the son of a noble minister who everyone, I am assured, thought to be saved. I'm sure everybody told young Elias that he's in Christ. I'm sure he believed to be in Christ, posing as an imposter. It brought him to authentic salvation in Christ. Just like in our text, it calls 3,000 souls to salvation. The preached word of God. It can call dead men to life today. So we preach it. We preach it as dying men to dying men, as one pastor once famously said. The preaching of the gospel brings transformation. That's what we see in our text this morning. Here's a summary of our text in just one one sentence. It's through the preaching of the gospel, Peter gives the first Christian sermon, and then God's word establishes his church. That's the biggest takeaway from what you just heard preached at you Uh, through, through the reading of Scripture this morning. Let me say that again. Through the preaching of the gospel, Peter gives the first Christian sermon, and God's word establishes his church. So what do I want to do this morning? I want us to understand the transforming power of the preached word. We can do that with our text. We see that transformation by looking at, first, the transformed preacher, Secondly, we're going to see the transforming proclamation, the message itself. And then thirdly, the transformed people. We're going to look at the person, the preacher, the proclamation, and the people. Let's look at the first thing. Let's talk about Peter, the transformed preacher. We got to start with him, okay? We start with this preacher because the Bible says in Romans, who can hear the gospel preached if someone isn't willing to stand up and do it? Well, in our text, it was Peter. Peter. Peter stands to preach the gospel. Look at verse one again. Look at the Bible. But Peter, standing with the 11, he lifted up his voice and he addressed them. Men of Judea, all who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known to you. Give ear to my words. Look at the end of the passage, verse 40. With many other words, he, Peter, he bore witness And continue to exhort them, that is, encourage them, challenge them, saying this, save yourself from this crooked generation. Now, my words in verse 1, or as verse 40 shows, Peter is an example of gospel preaching. He's preaching the gospel. Verses 2 through 36 are the first recorded message. It's the first Christian sermon ever recorded. But get this, it's not the last It's not the last, and it won't be the last. Filled up with the Spirit, he pours out, Peter does, through preaching, the truth of God's word to connect people to the saving power of the gospel. Now, get this about the book of Acts. Peter's going to do it again in Acts 3. We're going to see it again in Acts 4 and Acts chapter 5. Other people do it in Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 7 and 8. Peter does it again to Cornelius and some Gentiles in Acts 10. And guess what? The whole rest of the book is men standing up and preaching the gospel of resurrection. I point that out to make the point that right here, this Christian sermon, the first one, is done an extraordinary power through an ordinary man and the normal means of grace. It has a purpose. It's for salvation and building up the church. That's what we're going to see. For our first point, though, let us consider Peter, who preaches about this Jesus. Peter stands boldly here to preach the gospel to the crowd, and it's after a crowd has gathered. It's amazing to see, um, but ask yourself, why is this happening? Well, listen, they are gathering because God's spirit has been poured out in an amazing way just prior to this. And we said last week that the, 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 what we saw of, of Pentecost, that in a big way through fire and wind, God drew these people together in the city. And now we see the transition that the apostles make from that room out into a space that allows, for this afternoon, 3,000 people to hear the preaching of the gospel. But I want you to remember that the transformation couldn't happen... If these men were not first born again themselves. That is, in order to preach a transformed, transforming message, they gotta be transformed first. They gotta be born again. Peter was. And though he was bold before this moment in his life of being converted, we learn that he was someone in need of transformation. See, before he was a transformed preacher, he had to be transformed himself. Peter was not preaching the gospel boldly three years ago when he was at John, John's baptism meeting Jesus for the first time. No, no, no. He wasn't a transformed preacher. He was just a fisherman, a common man called by God. Peter wasn't preaching the gospel boldly when he doubted Jesus's ability in the midst of a storm, when he started to walk on water himself to Jesus who was walking on water. And yet when fear and doubt and the unknown ceased him, he began to sink. Peter was not preaching the gospel boldly as he doubted the one who stood on the waves. He was not preaching the gospel boldly when he was rebuked by Jesus and was called Satan. When Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, as Peter, not preaching the gospel boldly, but rather trying to stop Jesus from dying the death that he deserved. Peter was not preaching the gospel boldly when he denied our Lord three times in the temple, swearing, cursing, essentially, calling a curse on himself, saying, I don't know that Jesus. Peter was not preaching the gospel boldly then. He was not preaching the gospel boldly on the resurrection shores after Jesus rose from the grave, when Jesus called him three times to love him and to feed his sheep. Listen to me, these moments that make up the story of one being transformed are very important. They're like the moments I'm sure the young Elias Keach had before his, prior to his conversion in the middle of a sermon. I will tell you, they are like the moments of your life where you think that you are unsavable or unlovable or are too difficult. Your season's too hard. Who is God? He's not real. All the thoughts you have, doubts, struggles prior to your conversion. But here's what we got to see in gospel preaching. Peter must have thought when he denied Jesus, can I even be saved? I mean, that's the lowest point in Peter's life that we see. I mean, he has betrayed Jesus in the worst of ways. He's turned his back on God. He has has denied that it is Jesus who is his Lord. How low he must have felt when Jesus looked him in the eye and the rooster crowed the third time, right? You know what he was asking? Can I be saved? Can I be born again? Can I be transformed? Look, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you do ask the same things, I'm sure. Have you asked yourself, can I be saved, me? Like in all my mess, and all the brokenness of my life, can I be transformed? You'll never preach the transforming gospel message until you've been transformed yourself. So get an answer. Well, look, the Bible answers it. The Bible has an answer for Peter. It has a one for me and you. Before preaching this transforming message with power, one must be transformed. How? Let me take you to one passage. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Answers. And then verse 11. I'm going to read it to you, and I'm going to explain. You write it down. Look at it later. But asking the same question as Peter, how can I be saved? The, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, and he asks a question. He says, okay, you asking a question about how you can be saved? Well, here's a question for you. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Translation, sinners will not inherit God's kingdom. He then goes on to say this. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral. That's a blanket statement for all sexual perversion under the sun. Anyway, God says sex is this way and I've said it this way and you go do something else. That's what he's talking about. Do you not know? Neither them nor idolaters. That's people who put anything above God and worship it. They worship anything above God. Whether you love it, job, person, people, relationships, food. You love it as an idolater. Don't you know someone who does that will not inherit the kingdom of God? Nor adulterers. That is people who willingly cheat on someone that they're supposed to be giving their trust and their covenant and their love to and they go elsewhere. In their own hearts even, Jesus would condemn Do you know that nor do men who practice homosexuality. It's stated explicitly here for the purpose because just like we have struggles in this today, they also saw this in Corinth in the first century, just like it's in the oldest parts of of the Old Testament. And it says that people who do it will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. It says in verse 10, nor thieves Someone who desires something not their own, and so they go and they take it. Whether it be that car or that money or that candy or that wife or that whatever, they take it for themselves. It ain't theirs, and they steal it. Don't you know thieves won't inherit the kingdom of God? Nor the greedy. People who are greedy and want what they can't have, and so they just lust after it, and they spend their lives hunting after it. They won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. Nor drunkards. The text says people who get drunk, that's on wine, that's on alcohol, that's a drunken lifestyle, that's intoxication of any sort that makes my mind not sober and clear-minded shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven, nor revilers, even people who speak wrongly, one time out of line, a backbiter, a gossip, someone who reviles and makes fun of another human being or a swindler. Someone who hustles someone out of their money or their hard-earned thing. They cheat. They take the shortcut in life to get what they have. God says none will inherit the kingdom of God. So if you ask the question like Peter, how can I be saved? The answer the Bible gives is if you do any of those things, you can't be. You're not inheriting the kingdom of God. You won't be saved because of those things. That's everyone, including Peter, including me. So we rightly ask then, well, how? How can someone be saved? You know what's amazing about 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 that I just read you? Verse 11. Never stop reading the Bible. <laughs> Keep reading it. You know what verse 11 says? Paul, after hammering that list to a church, says, And such were some of you. Such were some of you. The transformed Peter who stands up, he knows that he was a denying, gospel hating liar who was not up for the task of following Jesus, he denied his Lord. He knows it as he stands on this day. How can that be? You know why? Because of this verse, such were some of you, but you were washed. I love that language. A lot of that list in 1 Corinthians are the type of sins that when you're done, that you feel dirty. When you've been drunk on a bender and you're like waking up and you're finally sober, you feel dirty. When you've committed grotesque acts of sin and you you know it was fun in the moment, but the next day or the end of that weekend comes, you feel filthy. And God says, "Yeah, you were like that, but I washed you. I cleansed you." The Bible says, "You were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God." That's salvation transformative gospel preaching. It starts with transformed gospel-believing preachers. Listen to me. God can use a donkey. He's done it. God can use rocks. He can use the sky. He can use a fire and a wind to draw people. Yes, he can. But you know what he's revealed his power in? He's revealed his power to save people through the sovereign work of using messed up, broken people like Peter, like me and you, I could not stand up here today and preach to you if I didn't believe that every one of them things on that list of 1 Corinthians in some way or fashion have I participated in. Just shy of maybe a couple, but when I stare at it, I can't, I can't escape knowing my own past. But God says, yeah, yeah, you were, but now you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified in the name of the Lord. And there's only one Lord, it's Jesus Christ. So God uses transformed preachers. That's the only people he uses. Anybody that stands on any other hope to try to tell you to be saved is a liar. Don't listen to them. Listen to people who are willing to say to you, I was a sinner, I was broken, my life was a wreck, and I got no business preaching because of me, but I'm gonna preach because of him. That is the beginning of transforming power. And Peter has it. The transformed preacher was Peter. And he preached the first Christian sermon here. What was that message? That's point two. You've heard me say Peter preached the first Christian sermon. Let's hear that proclamation and and understand it. Now, I said first Christian because it's the first sermon someone preached after Jesus got up out of the grave. He rose again. And not only is that true, but Peter, he preaches a perfect model of a sermon here. He shows what preaching should be, and he shows what it should do. His sermon has an introduction, a main message in its body, and then a conclusion, and it's followed by a call to respond. Now, God handled the uh, introduction's ability to grab their attention. You know, that was all the fire and the, and the, the fall of the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, it's a lot better than my printout, right? I mean, I got I to get your attention when we do a sermon, Right? <laughs> But God, God just did it through Pentecost. But Peter makes sense of it. And Peter shows that this is scripturally something happening, not chaos. That's his first point in 14 and 15. And he uses Joel, we're gonna see. But I just want you to realize that in his introduction, something's happening here. Okay, he's not calling their attention to, to get all wild and crazy. He's telling them to be quiet and listen for a second which is very important. I read this story this week. R.C. Sproul tells the story of there was this faithful, you know, faith healer who was coming to America that when, when R.C. was young and R.C. went to the revival to hear him. And so this guy is going to come out and he's going to preach and everybody's going to get healed is the promise. But first comes out a hype guy and he has his tambourine, right? And he's playing it and everybody's getting emotional in the crowd. And R.C. Sproul, a preacher notices what's going on and he realizes it. And, he, and, and the guy at the stage says, he says, turn to people and say, the devil's a liar. And they're all doing that. And his lady turns around and tells R.C., he said, the devil's a liar. And he said, I just stood there silently. Well, one of the ushers noticed that R.C. Sproul was not feeling it. And he came over to him and he said, what's the matter, son? Don't you feel the Holy Spirit? And R.C. looked at him and he responded and he said, if this is the Holy Spirit, I'm going to sleep in tomorrow morning. <laughs> in other words, if this is the Holy Spirit, I'm not coming back. Because I, I don't understand. This, all, this, all this uttering and jumping and jiving and craziness, this, this ain't teaching me nothing. This is just making me uncomfortable. And R.C. comments and he says this. He says, Peter, in our text, proclaimed with boldness and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he calls them, he says, he did not leave his brain in the parking lot. And he did not ask the people to circumvent their intelligence. Because he knew that a real gospel message that moves the heart, it gets to the heart through the mind. In other words, you can't show up and say, yeah, we're being changed, we're being changed, we're being changed, and never preach the saving message that actually changes, right? And so Peter does it. He points out to them and he says, hold on, they're not drunk like you think they are. They ain't drunk, okay? Something's happening, let me tell you about it. He gains their attention. And then we see his sermon becomes a few things. First, we see his sermon's biblical. Secondly, it's Christ-centered. It's a Christ-centered sermon, and it's bold. It's bold, and it's very sound. Let me show you how it's biblical. You'll notice that Peter quotes the Old Testament quite a lot, right? He does. I mean, look at the text again. He starts out, first he quotes Joel's prophecy. Now, if you're wondering where Joel is, that's over here in the Old Testament, the prophet Joel was a man, a preacher raised up by God in the days of Israel who spoke to Israel at a time when locusts were literally like taking over the land, they had no food, it's awful season and then Joel is raised up to say, "Hey, you see that? It's going to be worse. <laughs> People who don't believe in God are going to have it a lot worse than not eating. They're going to be judged." So that's what we get all this, you know, blood moon and weird stuff in this text. That's because Joel was showing them there's a day to come. Peter picks up the Old Testament in verses 16 through 21. He shows them and he says, look, God said it. And I'm telling you, it's happening right now. Look what he says. He says, this is in fulfillment of, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Peter connects his Jewish audience to something that they know was promised to come. They would view this moment. This is the biggest text in the Old Testament that points to the Holy Spirit coming. Okay, and they would have known that when that happened, it started the last days. What they would have understood to be the last days, not the final day, but the last days. That is the day after you know God's Spirit is poured out before judgment's coming, and and, and he shows them it's being fulfilled right here. Now you'll notice that some of this stuff is kind of scary. That's intentional. You look at the way Joel's prophecy ends. God showing signs in heaven and the earth below, blood, fire, vapor, smoke, the sun turning toward darkness, the moon to blood. When that day of the Lord comes, Peter, after hearing, um, after, after standing and seeing what's happened, the day that he's talking about, mentioned in 19 and 20, it it takes place ultimately the final day of judgment. It's to come. See, Joel's prophecy, this is how prophets work. It was spoken in that time for Israel. It was prophesying a future time and sometimes it was prophesying all the way to the end. So we have partial fulfillment right here. The spirit is falling on everyone. But Peter includes the portion that says, but guess what? For those who will not call upon the name of the Lord and be saved, what do you have to look forward to? Judgment. I love the way John MacArthur put it. He said this, after hearing Peter quote Joel's terrifying description of the day of the Lord, the crowd would naturally want to know how to avoid being caught in that time of terror and devastation. In other words, hellfire and brimstone preaching is not just made up. That language even is borrowed from what God has said. God says that he will have an end to time. Meaning what we understand as this season to hear the gospel, respond, repent, and believe the gospel, that people will be separated at the end of of, of the beginning of eternity, but the end of time is me and you know it. And on this hand will be those who don't believe. And on this hand will be those who believe. The believe will be with Jesus in paradise for eternity. The non-believers will be what? Cast into the lake of fire eternally. Damned, separated from God. So, Peter, in his work here, has shown, Look, it shall come to pass, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, he doesn't just scare, he also shows them. Now, look, second, he quotes Psalm, and specifically a Psalm about David, Psalm 16, 8 through 11. This Psalm is explicitly about David himself for almost all of its content. However, At the end of it, David speaks concerning a future Messiah. I want you to see this, church. The men of Israel hearing this specific text would have been very familiar with this song. Not only that it is clear when reading it that David could not have been talking about himself, something that Peter's talking about. He's going to explain. But for now, it's important to see Peter wants them to realize God's word, just like in Joel, was speaking before God raised up this preacher and was preaching the truth. Someone would come that would not see the corruption of the grave, but they would actually be able to defeat it. And it wasn't David. Finally, our third text he quotes to show that his sermon's biblical is he quotes Psalm 110 uh, 110 verse 1. That's there, and you see in verse 34, the last quote that he has in the Bible there. Now, Psalm 110.1, this is the most quoted Old Testament verse in all of the New Testament. The New Testament preacher, teachers, even Jesus himself quoted this, and it tells us what they believed about this Jesus. But I want you to see, this psalm was a psalm of David as well, but it is extremely important to realize that this one was written by David, because guess what? You know who David was? He was king. We could say he was Lord of Israel. Just under God himself, David is the king over all of God's people. He's the Lord. And in this text, in Psalm 110, Peter brings it out to tell these men, when David says, the Lord, Yahweh in Hebrew, says to my Lord, Adonai in the Hebrew, Peter uh, Peter is making the point, David is not talking about himself. He's talking about his Lord and he's distinguishing him from God in the sense of this is the Messiah to come. He's saying that, (laughs) so it says Yahweh. So God says to my Lord, in other words, my God, what's happening? Friend, the Old Testament has been preaching to them for a thousand years and Peter shows it. Before you get too bored of this, I was shocked in preparing this sermon to realize 45%, that's almost half, of Peter's sermon is quoting the Old Testament scripture word for word. That's amazing. Almost half. So the first Christian sermon was not a topical sermon. It was not an illustration loaded sermon telling you all these awesome funny stories It wasn't that. It wasn't some stand-up comedy with a funny joke at the intro and a funny joke at the end to make sure we're all okay while we go have donuts. It wasn't that. It wasn't some self-help message encouraging you to just be a better person. You can have your best life. Just try hard. That wasn't his style. It wasn't his sermon. Man, it it was not an invitation to come down to the front With some emotional closing, you know, banger of a story, pulling at your heartstrings to consider God. You know what it was? Bible. Half of his sermon was biblical exposition. It was giving sense. It was making sense of the scriptures in a persuasive and a compelling way. It was biblical. Almost half of it. Man, where are the seminaries teaching that the preaching of the word of God for half of your sermon is the goal. I can, I don't, I'm in one and I'm having a hard time finding that. 50% of the 40-minute exposition is just Old Testament scripture or just New Testament scripture. We don't have a stomach for it. But the first church was birthed on the, on the end of a biblical sermon where half of its content was just reading God's word to them. That's powerful. Point being, transformative proclamation drew its authority from the Bible. It was biblical. But you know what it was? Secondly, it wasn't just reading the Bible. Because trust me, if I just read the Old Testament to y'all, Redemption Baptist Church would never grow, <laughs> right? Why? Because we'd just be like, "Woo!" And we could just done this at home, which you need to, right? Now there was something else that came alongside it to be, you know, it was biblical. But you know what else it was? Christ-centered. It was Christ-centered. The title of my sermon this morning, I think, could be the title of Peter's sermon, This Jesus. When you read it, our, our sister did such a good job reading it, and you can almost see Peter pounding his hand on the pulpit. This Jesus, this Jesus, this Jesus. One simple reading like we've done today can show it. Not only are those moments where he says that, not only are they powerful and even poetic and compelling, but they are in fact true. It is Peter's three points following those three passages and each time, passage of scripture connects it to Jesus. Passage of scripture connects it to Jesus and it brings salvation. Consider this, Joel's sermon, okay? After Joel. After he's done with Joel, what does he say? He says, this Jesus through miracles and signs affirmed by God Almighty was God Almighty. And you know what? You murdered him. That's powerful. Joel looks to this day by the power of the Holy Spirit. But like biblical prophecy does often, he also includes a vision beyond Pentecost in his text, beyond 2022 even, to the very end of time or the final judgment. Peter shows them. He says, hey, God made a plan speaking through Joel for all the time. Don't you realize this Jesus... God, according to his foreknowledge, just like you just experienced, this Jesus, God in his infinite wisdom, allowed to be killed and crucified at your hands. Peter connects for them and shows them the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was God's plan to crush his own son for you. Peter takes it. He takes the judgment that they would face that you and I would face and in times apart from Jesus and he, he shows look what's been what should be applied to you God decided to apply it to him this Jesus who you killed who I killed Guys get this these people they're not the Roman guards they're not the ones who who took a hammer and drove a railroad spike through the heel of Jesus they're not the people who nailed him through his forearm on the cross But Peter's connection to Christ from the Old Testament here is you murdered him. It was as if because of your sin, it was as if you yourself nailed him. What about David's Psalm point two? This Jesus was prophetically known by David and by faith and was raised from death's grave. Man, just consider Peter and the Jews know that David was told by God that from his line would come a king that would be enthroned forever and that his kingdom would never end. Peter, being Christ-centered, he shows the crowd, look, David looked forward by faith. Verse 31, David foresaw and he spoke about the resurrection that Peter says he's seen with his own eyes. All the men they're looking at have seen it. Peter tells them to consider this. David's tomb is with them on this day. They can go visit it. Here's how our translation of this could be. We can tell lost people, hey, let's load up. Because we can go to Muhammad's tomb and we can be visited. We can go there and visit it. We can find the Dalai Lama who has a known gravesite. We can go to the spiritual lying leader of Joseph Smith and realize he was laid in the dirt. We can show you men are of the dust and to the dust they return. But guess what? No one can take you to Jesus's grave. You know why? He ain't in it. And Peter says, Christ rose and it was God who did it. This Jesus that you murdered, God raised to life. This Jesus Peter's application is strong. This Jesus, theos. (laughs) This Jesus, God, raised. And we're witnesses. But man, finally, how does Peter finish it? His last point. After quoting where... It is the Lord who sits at the right hand. It is David who said, my Lord, my Adonai, sits at the right hand and makes enemies footstools. Peter shows them in verse 34 and 35, this Jesus is the sovereign Lord of all. This Jesus is the resurrected Lord. And so he concludes, and I want you to hear it again, because Peter makes a point. He says, let everyone... Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. He is the Messiah and he is Lord. He's the king. This Jesus whom you crucified. Later preacher of the gospel, Paul says this about our preaching. We preach Christ crucified. We preach him crucified. We don't apologize for it. He says, it's a stumbling block to Jews. It's folly to Gentiles. Pagans don't understand it. But to those who are called, hear this language right now. But to those who are called, both Jew and Greek, plug in any language you want, plug in any culture you want. To those who are called, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ-centered preaching is enough. At this point, we just need God to work in the sermon. And Peter knows it. So he closes. Now, before we close, I want you to consider one more thing. This sermon was bold and it was sound. What I mean by sound, I mean it had good doctrine. It made sense. This sermon, if you'll notice, it has passion. It has content. It has power. But have you noticed how simple and short it actually is? Now, likely Peter spoke more than this. In order for 3,000 souls to be added, I imagine this whole afternoon, the rest of that little snippet there where it says that he was telling them, save yourselves from this crooked generation. He kept on preaching. However, what we get preserved is the main outline. And the main outline is calling people to believe. And it's doing it boldly. Peter was bold because of the confidence that God's word gave him. Today's common preaching lacks I think, soundness, and therefore it lacks godly boldness at times. I'm, I'm, I'm grieved in this age today as some of the preaching that happens in churches. Today's common preaching, it lacks that soundness, that goodness, that is the simple example here. It's not bombastic then. It's not bold. It's, it doesn't draw like it's supposed to. What has happened I want to ask the question, why, why have so many gotten away from biblical, Christ-centered, bold preaching? Why is it so easy to get away from it? It's not a news story with us. Turn on TBN and watch all these people who call themselves preachers lie. It's not new. For a long time, people have at times stood up and have been worthless preachers. Let me give you one example again. It's from John Wesley. And say what we want about the Methodist preacher, John Wesley. He had some crazy theological views. However, he knew something about boldness concerning biblical texts. Peter's passion and boldness and the commitment to God's word. It reminds me of a story I once heard about John Wesley. John Wesley was a Methodist preacher, theologian. Uh, he was an Arminian theologian. He did a lot of preaching, a lot of preaching, Okay. He also listened and he gave counsel to young preachers. And there's one story where John Wesley goes and he hears a man preach and he was not pleased. And then he hears him seven years later. So he comes back around and he hears the man again. And guess what? After seven years, the man was worse. Worse. John Wesley wrote this to him. It's pretty, pretty tough to hear if you're a preacher. He wrote wrote this, quote, What has exceedingly hurt you in times past, nay, and I fear to this day, is a want of study. Translation, you're not studying enough. I scarce ever knew a preacher reads so little, and perhaps by neglecting it have lost the taste for it. Hence your talent in preaching does not increase. It is just the same as it was seven years ago. It's lively, but not deep. It is just the same as it was. There is little variety. There is no compass of thought. Now, that is a description, I think, of a preacher's error, you know, in the 18th century here. But I think it's sometimes a lot of the error that you and me hear in preaching today. A lot of liveliness, but not a lot of depth. I want you to see in today's text, Peter doesn't have that problem. No, no, no. What's Peter been doing? He's been studying God's word. He's been praying for God to move. He has waited patiently in these days. And now, now he preaches boldly and soundly. Wesley continues to that preacher. You know what he says? We get good value out of this on looking to hindsight. He tells him, he says, if you're going to change, study only can supply this. You want to change? Get in God's word with meditation and daily prayer. Oh, begin, he says. You may acquire the taste which you have not. And then he says this about studying. Listen to me. He says, what is tedious at first will afterward be pleasant. I would be a fool to tell you that these people, these 3,000 that get saved in this sermon, that they just prayed a prayer and walked away and then never thought about church again. That's nuts. That is not what happens. They turn into people who, even though it's tedious at first to open up those scriptures, to have everything in common, to believe in God using the church in your life, they press in. They're called by God and they study and they work hard. That's next week's sermon. But I want you to realize that the preacher himself needs to understand this. Wesley finishes, it's for your life. There's no other way. Or else you will be a trifler all your days and a pretty superficial preacher. If somebody called me a pretty preacher, I think that's the worst insult that they could ever give me. Like, call me anything, but don't call me some pretty preacher. Right? You preach the gospel, friend? I think if someone that I highly respect, like John Wesley gave this, it would be a good critique. Now, I bring this story up, however, to make note of how often that's the kind of preaching marking the church today. And it's sad because it has no power from God. Having prayed for boldness, studied hard, the transformed Peter preaches a biblical, Christ-centered, bold, and sound proclamation that's what we need that's what we need we need it in our churches we need it in this church we need it until God opens the skies comes back and sets up shop here for eternity that's what we need and here's why this kind of preaching changes people it's our conclusion look what the word of God did to these people it's phenomenal I mean, it's phenomenal. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible as a preacher, but also just as a Christian because I believe God can do this for me. He's done it. I believe God can do it for you. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what do we do? What do we do? In a moment, according to God who gives the growth, a large portion of this crown, they went from curiosity to Christianity just like that. Back up in the the chapter, verse 12, these people were asking, uh, what does all these languages mean? What's the sign of all these languages? They were genuinely curious. Now here in verse 37, they realize their own sin and they are drawn to the irresistible grace of God. I want you to notice the detail of their question. People that respond to transformative gospel preaching the truth, you know what it looks like? It looks like something called repentance. It looks like a heart that under the idea of what I shared earlier, I'm lost. The heart grows heavier and heavier. The feet get heavy. The the, the palms get sweaty. A person realizes, I deserve judgment. If this is what you're saying is true, a man beat death and he rose from the grave and he's God and I'm to believe in him as my Lord. If that's true, I can't be who I am and and, and be accepted by him, right? I'm a sinner. That's what comes to their minds. They ask, what do we do? If we killed this God and now we realize we need him and you're saying he rose from the grave and he can save us, what do we do? Their plight is beautiful. They realize that they've trampled God's law. They broke all of them. They realize they've missed God's promises. They didn't understand the text that they've heard. And as Peter has shown them, God himself they have killed with their sin. They feel its effects. And it's like a noose tightening around their neck, showing them that their lives are worthless apart from him. It's as if they're saying, what do we do with this realization Can and will God forgive us? We've sinned, Peter. What do we do? We need need the one we've killed. We need the promise that he lives, and that for us can be something other than judgment. Now, that may not all be present there, but in reality, that's what repentance sounds like, friend. Verse 38, Peter told him, he said, repent and be baptized. Notice, Peter does not say redirect your life to God. He doesn't answer them and say, hey, let me hold out hope. If you just keep trying to be good enough and turn over a new leaf, you're going to be okay. That ain't his answer. No, Peter doesn't ask them to pray a prayer to accept Jesus in their heart. He doesn't call them to, to, you know, come down to the front. He calls them to repent right there where they are. Repent of what? Repent of the sin that keeps them from coming to Jesus. It is all that keeps them in that moment. It's as the old hymn that we sing around here says. the, The hymn says, Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost, and ruined by the fall. If you wait, if you tarry until you're better, you'll never come at all. You'll never come. It's true. They'll never come if they try to be better. Rather, they must turn from all their sin and all their effort even. They have to repent even of their good works. And they have to turn to the one thing that can save them. Trust by faith in Christ who died for them. Repent and be baptized. Some have gone too far to imply that baptism here is shown to be effectual for forgiving sin. It's not true, nor is it the context. The emphasis is on receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit in repentance. The sign from that accompanying it this day is that they're going to have to participate in a public showing Setting themselves away from what they thought was Jewishness and stepping into 3,000 of them through the waters of baptism, a new commitment, a public symbol showing that their repentance points to what Jesus did on the cross and he got out of the grave. And so they're baptized. It's a sign. So Peter tells them, he says, be saved and then follow Jesus, be saved and then be baptized, be saved and then be added to the church to be accountable for keeping with that repentance. And to be loved. That's what the church is all about. So if I'm going to love somebody, I better know that they believe what I believe. So they pass through the same sign that I do, baptism. I see them and I say, I love you and your love for Christ that you're declaring. I believe we're together in this. And so they did. They were baptized. It wasn't to save them. Amazingly, I mean, just real quick note, if you think baptism saves, because a lot of people get that from this text, it's crazy. The same guy, like 20 years later, writing to the early churches, literally says, hey, baptism that corresponds with saving faith is not the removal of dirt from the body and washing. It's a clear conscience. That's 1 Peter. So the same guy had the same message to say 20 years later when he was standing and preaching the gospel. Repent and then be baptized. In other words, follow me. Now, real quick, some make a case for infant baptism here, but this too undermines the hope of this scripture. It's not, when it says it's for your children, here's the hope. These Jewish people want to believe that God's for them and all their generations to follow. And so their generations, this promise is for them. If they repent and they believe, they too can have it. That's why he also includes those who are far off, friend, brother, sister, that's me and you. That's Gentiles. People that aren't Jewish can also be saved. So know this response for what it really is. You cannot cherry pick verses out of the Bible. You need to let its pure effects that the preached word is have effect. And the effect it has here, God builds his church on the word of God. I love it. Man, I could preach about it till I'm blue in the face and I'm probably getting there. Verse 41, those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. In conclusion, first note, they who received it were baptized. Y'all catch that? They didn't leave their brains in the parking lot. They knew it. They comprehended it. They were learned it. They were taught. They understood. Once they received it, then came the emotion, the joy, the hope, the baptism, the celebration, and the new life. Once say new. God made them known. And then secondly, they were added. If you want to find the first example of meaningful membership in the Bible, that is God wanting you to belong to a people, not a perfect people, but to belong to a church. Here it is. It says they were added. That is not, mis- that's not a misrepresentation. Okay, they knew from this day forward who was in the church saying I'm a Christian and who was not in the church saying they were not a Christian. They knew it. And those lines will get challenged and blurred. We'll see. But God will make it clear. The Holy Spirit has made a people. Their commitment was up front. Their commitment was up front. They didn't grow into it. They committed and God brings this beautiful community together. God has been saving in this fashion right here for going on 2,000 years now. I believe he does it today. I believe it. God said he will not stop until every nation has an authentic witness that stands up like Peter and, or sits down over coffee or over a dinner table and holds out to strangers a message, a biblical message, a Christ-centered message, a bold message from a transformed people, you know what it does? It transforms others. And when you're transformed, you know I'm ready to repeat the process. I'm ready to go and preach to people who came and preached to me. And I can't wait to do it. I don't care how scared I am of them or what it costs me. I will sit with them and I will show them this Jesus that you crucified rose from the grave. He loves you. Believe. And that's what Christians have been doing for 2,000 years. Why? This first sermon right here. It's powerful. It's so powerful. It saved a man when he was in the middle of preaching it. I thank God that i have hope and assurance that that didn't happen to me this morning, right? But listen, I pray it does. I pray. I pray that even in our knowing and studying that God, God would just meet us afresh over and over again. Not for salvation, which comes once, but as a continued unpacking of that salvation, that's the hope you and I have. Now, I'm going to close in prayer and we're not going to sing in response this morning. We're going to respond by having a time of prayer together as a church because that's what we do every other week here. But just because we're not, I think it's kind of appropriate. Just because, I mean it just it, God worked it out cuz I mean of the circumstances. But normally we would stand and the song we were going to sing is Amazing Grace. That's what we were going to sing. Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound has saved a wretch like me. I was blind, behold, right? I was blind. I was lost, but now I'm found. Blind, but now I see. And we were going to sing about that. But friend, let me tell you, if you're here today and you don't believe in Christ, listen to Peter's counsel. His counsel is not go get caught up in some emotional high. His counsel is press in, repent. If you know God's calling you to turn, turn from sin and turn to Jesus, And if you feel like you're weak and you can't do that on your own, press into the friends and the people around you who are pointing you to Christ. Press into God's word chiefly. That's the invitation that he gave these. Some of them were cut to the heart. Some of them were so changed in a moment that they knew. And God was pleased to do it for 3,000 to start his church. Okay? He's still doing it today. So I'm going to pray for us. And then after I pray, we're going to make a transition. And we're going to actually pray as a church. We're going to pray together as a church for things that are uh, close to God's, God's heart, all Right? Pray with me. God, we come to you and we thank you for this morning and for the preached word, for the examples of men like Elias Keach or Jonathan Wesley or Christians before us, God, who have stood on the hope of Acts 2 and preached the truth. And God, we admit we've been critical of some preachers today But God, it's because it burdens us to know that some people would take the burden of of Jesus Christ that is light for us, that is beautiful for us. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree that we would not die to sin, but would live. And some, God, preach that we must do something. We must say something rightly or we must feel something in order to know that we're saved. When really what we lack is repentance, trust and faith, and a community to help us walk it out. So Lord, we pray for those preachers that are in error. Would you correct them? Use your word, God, to correct men who stand up and falsely proclaim the truth. And God, if that has happened here at all today, I pray you'll remove it from the ear of the listener. God, give me grace and forgiveness as one humbled to to even consider doing this. God, I'm so thankful I'm so thankful you brought people to me to preach to me. I pray, God, you will use my my words today to help these in the room, to strengthen their faith. And if they don't have it, God, to cut them to the heart and show them this Jesus who they crucified, you raised up on their behalf. Grant salvation now again. Make us new. Father, we thank you for a time to do what the church has done for years, to gather together and pray. So Lord, as we transition away from the hope of gospel preaching and transformation, renew our hopes for these other things, for these things we've agreed to pray about together for as a church. God, hear our prayers and answer, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.